Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. We are a weekly Columbus-centric podcast focusing on the civics, lifestyle, entertainment, and people of our city. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. This week, as the Assistant Director of Housing Strategies for the City of Columbus, Aaron Prosser wakes up every day thinking about housing in our city. In today's episode, we discuss strategies for combating nimbyism before it takes hold, the importance of non-commercial partners when we think about housing, why housing should be thought of as infrastructure, and how we can right-size our systems in order to align them with our priorities. As a bonus this week, we have an additional conversation with entrepreneur David Hunanya about one possible micro-solution to density, lease the lawn. You can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Also, the Confluence Cast is on Patreon. Find out how to support this podcast on our website, theconfluencecast.com, or at patreon.com slash confluence. The Confluence Cast is sponsored this week by the Mid-Ohio Regional Planning Commission, or MORPSI, featuring stories about local and regional partners that envision and embrace innovative directions in economic prosperity, transportation, sustainability, and an inclusive central Ohio. Morpsey's transformative programming, innovative services, and public policy initiatives are designed to promote and support the vitality and growth in the region. For more information, please visit morpsey.org. Enjoy the interview. Sitting down here virtually with the Assistant Director of Housing Strategies for the City of Columbus, Aaron Prosser. Aaron, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Tim? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. First of all, Aaron, you are the city's first ever assistant director of housing strategies. Can you talk through what that role is and what the vision for it set out by Mayor Ginther? Yes, absolutely. So it was a position that was created last year, um, really looking at the changes that um, have been coming and are coming to our region around our population growth and the chronic underbuilding that's been happening uh, over the last few years, uh, understanding that we needed to take a comprehensive look at housing across our the city departments, across, you know, with our jurisdictional partners, really looking uh, at a high broad level about what it takes to adjust our systems and our kind of ways of doing business to make sure that we are able to adequately accommodate the growth that's coming and build the housing we need to support our population. Okay, and I wanna step back and sort of say, why are you in this role? Uh, Mm -hmm. I know you had a previous role with the university and with MKSK. Can you sort of talk about your background and what you bring to the role? Yes, absolutely. So I, uh, my original background, I have a master's in city and regional planning uh, and went into that field uh, really wanting to um, get into communities and into cities and and be part of uh, that growth of where we were seeing kind of that folks coming back into into cities and into urban spaces. And uh, it was something that seemed really uh, intriguing and exciting to me 
as a field. And I had mm-hmm. the opportunity to start my career actually with Franklin County um, in their planning office uh, and really got the opportunity to spend some time. Uh, one of my first projects was out in the Big Darby Accord and working mm-hmm. with uh, the townships and the suburban communities as well as Franklin County and the city of Columbus on a kind of cross-jurisdictional planning effort out there. Um, that was prior to the 2008 um, housing crisis that we saw mm-hmm. at that point. Um, shifting gears from the county, I was able to go and work with uh, MKSK, which is an uh, urban design uh, and planning firm here in Columbus, um, where I had the opportunity to really work in a lot of different uh, projects in a lot of different communities, focused on a lot of different issues that communities were seeing. Uh, it was a really uh, great opportunity to really understand the breadth of planning and what the opportunities there were. And just so that folks understand, that's a national firm. And so you're dealing with projects that are all around the country, if not all around the world. Yeah. And, you know, certainly a lot of my work was focused here. But yes, it's a firm that has a footprint, especially now it's even larger than when I was there. Um, and certainly has a footprint in projects around the country. Um, and was one that, kind of, again, I got that exposure to those different parts of planning and the different opportunities to influence uh, city growth and how you know communities uh, collectively come together to address some of the issues they're facing. And had the opportunity to work down in Cincinnati with 3CDC uh, mm-hmm. and really thinking about the work that they were doing specifically in Over the Rhine. Uh, and it was an organization that I thought was really uh, compelling and the opportunity to take planning into uh, kind of out off the shelf, so to speak, and really practically um, think about the role of development and how planning could actually enter into the development space and make an impact in communities uh, through the actual construction and development of projects and not just in the development of, of planning documents. Can you give an example of that and maybe bring in a little bit of your philosophy there? Just like, what does that mean? Sure. And, you know, certainly as planners, you know, predominantly we're kind of trained um, in mostly in the regulatory space. And, and for the most part, we will find ourselves working for cities, uh, counties or, you know, other municipalities or jurisdictions. Um, as that community voice in those conversations about physical development of the built environment, right? So that is really where you see things like zoning codes, you see things, um, housing regulations and other components uh, that allow us to sort of shape the built environment for us in our communities. And there was sort of this shift when I was working, thinking about not just sort of reacting to the plans that are brought to the community, but to actually uh, initiate and develop and design some of those projects and bring them into the community um, in a much uh, more di- direct way. Uh, and that was really what led me then to Ohio State and the opportunity to work with Campus Partners, which was as the uh, real estate-based affiliated entity for the Ohio State University, which was looking uh, out into the communities around the university's main campus, the university district, including the Wineland Park neighborhood and got the opportunity to, to shift gears and go over to the university and, and work on projects on behalf um, of the university and working with the communities to address some of the needs and issues facing the neighborhood outside the main campus of Ohio State. And you were d- working as director of community development there. So to be clear, it truly was, your, your portfolio was the stuff that was outside of the university. 
Yes, so we focus primarily on the ways in which we, especially you know, thinking about the role of Ohio State as a neighbor and as a, a stakeholder in the community, ways in which we could uh, work with the community members and make, be a positive influence and add projects and, and elements to the community that would really support uh, making, you know, one of the things I always said at Campus Partners is, you know, if you, being a neighbor of the Ohio State University should be a benefit and it should be a, mm-hmm. a good part of your life. And so that was really what that opportunity was to look at the neighborhoods around main campus and identify the needs and figure out how we could interject uh, projects to help support the goals the community had. I want to stick with the university just a little bit, maybe selfishly because I grew up there. Can you talk about sort of what you view that neighborhood, the university district, maybe, you know, North Campus specifically, of how that's evolved over time and what are the contributing factors? First of all, I want to note, this is not to say, what what did you do? But much more to have a, a philosophical understanding of how a neighborhood evolves, like North Campus specifically, and then how the positive influence in Wyland Park has changed that neighborhood. Yeah, and I think, you know, what we were really dealing with um, in the 80s and 90s in a neighborhood like the University District was we were seeing, especially our student population at Ohio State, choosing not to live in the nearby neighborhoods. They were choosing Mm -hmm. to live much further away um, and commute back into the University District for to go to class. And, you know, where we had, you know, let's say in the late 80s, early 90s, we were looking at, you know, around 15,000 students that lived in the nearby neighborhoods as we move as we move forward into the 90s we really saw that precipitously drop into more of the eight eight nine thousand student range Mm. Um, it was not a neighborhood of choice that was attractive to students it certainly wasn't attractive to faculty and staff and and was one where we were seeing that disinvestment which was not unique to the university district certainly around the country um, that disinvestment had been happening for a number of decades it was an you know an important area and an important community that was a place that could be brought back and be an attractive place to be. It was just a matter of identifying what was keeping um, those folks from choosing choosing the community. And I think certainly, you know, as we look back, you know, part of what also coincided with that disinvestment was also a very large, I'm going to go down to the south side of the university district because I think it helps mm-hmm. explain uh, some of the other issues in the district. But, you know, when you look down in the Wineland Park neighborhood, we had um, in the 70s, you had a, a Section 8 portfolio that was being developed through the new program under the federal government. And there was a lot of housing in Wineland Park because it was the original streetcar suburb where you had a really uh, housing that by the 70s was really conducive to project-based at the time of Section 8, now Housing Choice Voucher Program. Mm-hmm. And those units were uh, acquired and, and put into that, that project by a group of folks that um, ultimately created the nation's largest project-based Section 8 portfolio. And at the time it was called the Broad Street Portfolio. It was not well managed. The properties were not being invested in. Uh, those property owners were getting revenue off of those buildings by, but not having to necessarily invest or uh, manage the properties in any meaningful way, and okay. so those folks that could that that the folks that um, could get out of Broad Street portfolio, they got out of Broad Street portfolio, and the folks that were left behind were up to no good, and they were interested in the lackadaisical management of of the company, and that coinciding just nationally with uh, the crack and cocaine epidemic creates uh, a perfect storm in Wineland Park that leads us to the Short North Posse. 
um, and you really find a group of folks that coalesce ge geographically around Wineland Park um, and the opportunity to create at the which I think even still to this day is the city's largest and most violent gang uh, that we saw. They were largely located within the Wineland Park neighborhood. So that mm -hmm. created, um, again, just not a neighborhood of choice. People were not going to choose to live in that community. And then you saw uh, some of the public safety issues uh, spreading out into the community and into the, especially the northern part of the district. And so you start to see a lot of things that are we're seeing nationally in cities but certainly in the microcosm of the university district and because of a certain a couple factors it, it certainly became an exacerbated issue for the community and so there was a lot of folks looking um, at the issues being faced by the university district and really looking at how to dismantle and undermine the short north posse and their kind of hold on the wineland park neighborhood Mm -hmm. And there was an opportunity in the early 2000s uh, through HUD, a project called Mark to Market. And it was really where there had been an assumed increase in value on the properties that were put into these portfolios in the 70s. And by the early 2000s, what we know is that that increase in value wasn't occurring. What we were really seeing was the really disinvestment in those communities. And so mm -hmm. HUD said, you know, as we these contracts are 30 years, as they're coming due, we're going to take a look at really where we are in the market for these properties. And that was an opportunity for uh, the university through campus partners to really engage with uh, a couple of really key folks to say, let's see if we can get these pro properties into a different type of management, a nonprofit mm -hmm. management model with wraparound services and support for the residents. And that process was initiated in about 2003 with the creation of what is now Community Properties of Ohio. Okay. Um, and they were able to take possession of the portfolio. They were able to uh, invest pretty significant uh, dollars into the renovation of the units uh, and allow folks to uh, stay in those units and in, and in Wineland Park. Um, it still remains today the highest concentration of project-based Section 8 in the city is still located mm -hmm. in Wineland Park because of that sort of preservation of that affordability in the community as part of that mark-to-market shift out of Broad Street and into CPO. And so when you start to stabilize that property and that portfolio, you start to see that desirability of the neighborhood mm -hmm. uh, coinciding with the fact that, you know, certainly our younger uh, faculty and staff and, and younger folks, young professionals were interested in living in urban neighborhoods. They were interested in lifestyles that involved walking to work. Uh, it became sort of a place where it was again, a neighborhood of choice, and people were deciding to come into the community. And I think we see that throughout the university district as we got to see some of those improvements, especially on the public safety side. And what we knew as we started to really deal with the Broad Street portfolio and shift that management, we had a finite amount of time to lock down as much affordability as we could in the Wineland Park neighborhood prior to essentially the market taking over, right? And it really being a neighborhood of choice. And mm -hmm. so during that time, we were able to create a fund uh, where we were partnering with Columbus Foundation and J.P. Morgan Chase Foundation to put together money that we could acquire and lock down affordability in Wineland Park. We had partners like uh, what is now Thrive Company, which is the Wagonbrenners at the time, uh, mm -hmm. other folks, private public, philanthropic, uh, all came together and, you know, to some degree to look at the bricks and sticks and, and how we build in that affordability. Uh, but we had great partners like um, uh, Cardinal Health and Wexner Medical Center and other folks that came to really think through some of the other issues that the residents uh, were also facing and how we could create a really comprehensive neighborhood investment plan uh, that could address a lot of the different issues. Now, my 
particular uh, role in that process was really focused on bricks and sticks. Uh, a couple of things I think are really important about the Wineland Park work is that we did build in affordability and we did add units um, as well as preserve. Uh, but we did it in a way that was uh, very much uh, focused on high quality architecture. So as you drive through Wineland Park today, you might not recognize some of the affordable products that we added as being affordable. And that mm -hmm. was intentional, right? I don't, you know, we weren't looking to create a circumstance where it was very clear what the income of the person who lived behind a particular door, right? And that right. was very intentional. I think at times it is seen as a neighborhood that just changed entirely and that that affordability is completely gone. And it's a sort of a victim of our own success on being uh, able to blend those affordable units into the fabric in a way that's not as obvious to folks. And I think that's really where um, that, that work in Wineland Park was really the foundation for you know thinking deeply about housing in general um, and you know thinking about this this new role and the opportunity to kind of take that um, experience and, and translate it to the bigger the bigger city as well. And do you think that philosophy of bringing in housing stock that as you said it doesn't it doesn't look like affordable housing? I think that that's twofold. One, that it gives people a sense of pride in the place in which they live, regardless of the circumstances that brought them to that need. Additionally, I would hope that it counters a little bit of the nimbyism we see in, uh, certainly in our suburban areas of, I don't want affordable housing here because that will lower the cost of my home. Or, frankly, that will bring in a quote-unquote unwanted element to my home, to my community where I live. Yeah, and I think a lot of times our notions about what affordable housing is are rooted in um, very long-ago types of arrangements of how uh, public housing particularly was done in the 60s mm -hmm. and 70s. Um, the ways in which those programs sort of created a, a bias against um, what you know big A affordable housing and the opportunity to make sure that there's uh, housing available at price points that quite frankly the market just isn't going to deliver and that's really the distinction and that's to me the primary distinction right I mean the folks that are in these affordable units are our workforce and they mm -hmm. are working at restaurants they are working in our hospitals they are teaching in our schools, they are aides in our schools. These folks have uh, are have wages, but they are not enough to afford the market rent because of mm -hmm. what new construction costs. And so when we look at kind of the big A affordable and the in the development of what we see a lot of around um, the city with partners like Homeport and National Church Residences at WOTA and the folks that are really diving into the big A affordable, it's really about bringing units online that the market's just not gonna deliver and making sure that those are located throughout the city so that those opportunities to have that affordability are present in all our neighborhoods. Uh, but I think, you know, certainly in the Wineland Park example, I think you'd be hard pressed to walk the streets and be able to identify what the income is of who's behind mm -hmm. which door. And I think that's really where we've come a long way in affordable housing and where we've um, 
it has changed significantly and it's not always uh, what people immediately think of. And it's sometimes still back in those, those you know, kind of public housing days where the, honestly, the system just wasn't fully prepared um, to, to bring that housing in a way that was meaningful and it ended up creating some, you know, belief that that is not desirable housing. I want to go back to how you convene those partners in order to create a holistic approach to affordable housing, but maybe that's for another episode. But now with the city of Columbus, you're tasked with putting together a framework for housing strategy. You're working on that now, correct me if I'm wrong. We have a framework. Tell me about that framework. So the framework, you know, kind of uh, the high level overarching strategy is that we are going to build the housing infrastructure needed to support our growing region to ensure that no resident pays more than 30% of their monthly income to live in the neighborhood of their choice. Okay. So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I think when we talk about affordable housing, I would really like to talk about housing affordability for everyone in our community, right? So the goal is that you are not housing cost burdened. And the way that we define that is that you do not pay more than 30% of your income for your household expenses. So that would include your mortgage or rent payment as well as your utilities. Okay. What that means is that you then you have dollars left over to maintain reliable transportation, to pay for high quality childcare, to save, to buy a house if you're a renter. It allows you that remaining 70% of your income to, to put good food on the table and healthy food choices. All of those things are reliant on not being housing cost burdened. And so when we look at this, you know, Columbus region, I think we there's kind of two truths that are both present that are sometimes challenging to reconcile. And the one is we do have an impending housing crisis. We are under building, we are seeing rents going up, we are seeing housing prices go up, we're seeing, we're now the city with the shortest time a house spends on the market in the nation. So Denver's right behind us, right? And so we are flipping houses quickly, people are choosing to come to this community. That is true. And the second truth that we have right now in this moment is that we technically have an affordable housing market, right? We are, we are affordable relative to our peer cities. Mm-hmm. It is still possible to rent a unit. It is still possible to buy a house with a reasonable income and remain un, not, and not be housing cost burdened. Mm-hmm. We, we are in this sweet spot. So as we talk about building the housing infrastructure, right? So we want to look at, we're growing. Right. We are. We've talked about it. Everyone. I'm sure I can. um, Everyone's heard a lot of these statistics. But the one that always sticks with me is in the last decade, 2010 to 2020, we added the equivalent in a region of the city of Pickerington every single year. Hmm. We on average pre pandemic added 20,000 jobs a year. This year we're on track to add 30,000 jobs. And that does not include Intel. Hmm. We are adding boatloads of jobs, which is fantastic. If we do not build the housing commiserate with that job creation, we are going to back ourselves into the exact problem that is being dealt with now by Nashville and Austin and -hmm. cities like that where they're trying to dig their way out of the circumstance. And so really what the mayor's creation of this position was for someone to start to take, I think the initial directive was for me to wake up every morning thinking about housing. Mm -hmm. And thinking about how we right-size all of our systems, right? How do we look across the ways that the city has worked for the last 50, 60, 70 years? And we can't rely on those systems to build the housing infrastructure we need 
in the 2020s and in the 2030s and in the 2040s. So we're just going to have to take a look at all these different pieces and parts to make sure that we, the city of Columbus, can accelerate residential construction and bring the units we need into the city of Columbus. And then also spending time with our suburban partners and the others in the region, uh, including the business community, to start to talk about how we regionally build the housing infrastructure, right? Because there's just, there's physically not enough room in the city of Columbus to support all the growth. We need right. our suburban partners to be uh, with us in this conversation. So what are those disparate systems that you referenced that have an impact on housing? I assume zoning, I assume any sort of public aid that's being brought to bear. Yeah, so we start, uh, we're going to start in the next couple months um, to uh, revamp our zoning code. Uh, first comprehensive look at the zoning code in, in 70 years. Um, and you think about the types of policies and priorities we had 70 years ago are quite different than where we are today. And so our zoning code needs to reflect the priorities and needs that we have today, which it does not, right? It Can is you give an so. We hear that a lot. Can you give an example of something that's misaligned? I had the opportunity before I took uh, the job at the city. I worked, um, I was able to serve as a commissioner on the Historic Resources Commission for the city of Columbus. Mm -hmm. And we regularly have buildings that I think all of us would um, really recognize as being really amazing parts of our fabric. And they were built prior to zoning. Um, zoning code is now in place and has been for quite some time and we would regularly see folks coming in to bring those buildings back to life and really be part of that uh, back into the into the community and they would be saddled with getting zoning variances um, use changes maybe full-on rezonings just to make sure that they could were compliant mm -hmm. because the the great fabric we have and the way that we think of zoning doesn't zoning would not create German village today Right. right. Zoning is <laughs> fundamental. Yeah. Zoning is the, the great places we have uh, wouldn't be created by zoning. Right. It is it is about um, the separation of uses, which is not something that we value right now. Right. We're looking at um, just way more mixed use projects that are coming online. Right. Where we've mixing office with residential or retail on the ground floor of residential. And we're all enjoying those uh you know kind of more urban environments but the zoning code does not allow that to happen mm -hmm. you have to go through a process um of permissions and and um changes in order to facilitate something that feels uh like it is the fabric that we're looking for uh that separation of uses um kind of very specific uh character development standards that would be uh very in line with some of our suburban character, but may not facilitate um, some of the environments we're looking to do, especially as we grow and we need to add density. The zoning code is not equipped to deal with that right now. Got it. What else in terms of what else needs to be looked at in order to uh, have a comprehensive strategy? You know, again, I think there is um, a lot of, one thing about housing is it's, there is, I don't believe a department at the city of Columbus that doesn't at some point influence or impact housing uh, right. in one way or another, right? So we look at um, how we service utilities. We look at um, the requirements that we have in our public service department and how we are you know, really making sure that we can facilitate residential development um, while keeping and maintaining the other priorities we have. You know, right, it's not, I mean, 
I suppose in my position, I'd like for housing to be uh, the number one priority, but in fact, the city has a, a number of priorities. And so working with those other departments to make sure that we are putting our regulations and our other um, funding and our programs that can help boost all of our priorities and not at the expense of one another, but it's gonna take that coordination um, and really looking across the departments to make sure that you know we're all um, right-sizing all of our systems. Again, so we are meeting the needs and priorities that we have in this century as opposed to where we were last century. Got it. Part of what I picked up on from the, if, if no one could tell, I will reveal that you read out like this is the city's goal of 30% of income to live in. And what I picked up on is live in the neighborhood of your choice. There's a philosophy issue there, right? That it's not a, that falls to transit. It falls to like eight other things, right? And I guess I'm curious what, from a philosophical standpoint, how do you guarantee that? How do you uh, bring it to bear? And what, what sort of lens do you need to be looking at individual decisions through? All, yes, very, it's, you know, part of that inclusivity is really um, looking back at the way our systems really created um, economically and racially segregated uh, cities. You know, mm-hmm. that, again, talking about the zoning code and other mechanisms, that that was the result, right? And in central Ohio, the region, you know, a study out of the University of Toronto um, identified us as the second most economically segregated region mm-hmm. in the nation, second only to Austin. Um, that economic segregation, we have to be really deliberate about unwinding it. It is not something that will naturally happen. Um, we have to be investing and in making sure that we're including all of our residents. So when we and talk I do want to dumb in, that down just a little sure. bit for a second because I think people think of segregation and they're like it only means one thing. From an economic standpoint, all you're saying is these are rich neighborhoods and these are poor neighborhoods and never the two shall meet. Correct. Okay. You know, and that's that's the circumstance we have as a region. Um, you know, there are 43 separate jurisdictions in Franklin County alone. Uh, those are, in fact, 43 different zoning codes. Those mm-hmm. are 43 different development review processes. There's our 47, or, you know, those are ways in which 43 different practices of how housing gets built. And those practices have created... Um, wealthier areas and and less wealthy areas and that's where is that what that's interesting to me so that's what you would put that towards of these the standards in one neighborhood are different than the standards in another and hence you're gonna end up with disparate situations yes okay okay i just yeah i'd never heard that yeah i think the regulatory framework and again it is it is a balance right and there is um community character that each of our uh, neighborhoods within the city of Columbus have. Mm -hmm. And that's deeply important to being a great city and having the character of our different neighborhoods that we have. Um, But understanding how we facilitate the inclusion of everyone into those, each of those communities and how that gets done is really, really important. And we have to be deliberate about folding those folks into our communities and making sure that we, our regulations, again, looking at things like the zoning code, that we are um, making sure that there's a place for everybody in all our communities. And so that is really that um, 
a lot of work and conversation with our regional partners um, mm-hmm. around that. You know, where we're looking at our job centers, you know, it, when we think about including everyone in, in each of these communities and folks being able to live in the neighborhood of their choice, uh, you look at some of the other cities around the country where they may be building units, but they're building really far out. Mm. So where those folks are then, you know, you're trading your housing cost burden then for your transportation cost burden, which right. falls on the individual family, certainly, but it also falls on us as a, you know, system-wide as we look at additional traffic congestion, right? Each one of those folks that lives further out is going to have to drive more miles on our roads to get mm-hmm. to where the opportunities are. So that ability for folks to uh, live near work or identify the priority they have also affects just globally our bigger infrastructure systems and how they are able to uh, hold all of of this population growth. And so that proximity and the ability to have housing available to nearby these opportunity areas is really important also just for the broader system. How do you bring the 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 different regional partners together and get sort of a consensus on how things get built in their in in admittedly an area where they have autonomy in how things get built and i think it is a a big regional conversation we started it in a really meaningful way with morpsey's regional housing strategy that was completed in 21 uh, that was a p- strategy that was funded by not only the city of Columbus, but our suburban partners as well. Mm-hmm. Really all coming together, acknowledging that we need to start to collectively look at where we are as region and the systems we all have in our individual communities and how we can start to move the needle. I think the recovery and resiliency plan that the city of Columbus um, completed, I think in December of last year, uh, really called and really acknowledged the fact that we needed to have a regional uh, strategy for just unit construction um, and that we would need to have a regional collective conversation about what that production number is and how we can achieve it. As we look at those opportunity areas, you know, and I I talked earlier about this job creation versus housing construction. Mm -hmm. And if you look back at kind of the last um, economic cycle, call it 2009 to 2019, uh, you know, post 2008 and pre-pandemic, we were building one house for every two and a half jobs we were bringing into the community, region-wide. And that is not sustainable. The sustainable ratio is probably closer to one house for every 1.5 jobs. Okay. Um, considering we do have, obviously, there are two income households, but you know, certainly when you, the population includes folks that are not working, like children and the elderly, um, and we do have some single family or single income households. So you really want to be at a 1.5. So when we okay. look at our peer peer cities, they're closer into that 1.5. Um, Austin built 40,000 units last year. We. We built. We had a pretty good year last year and the year before at twelve thousand a year. But you know, Austin's building forty thousand. Um, Charlotte's bringing in twenty five thousand. Um, those units are being constructed that are much more commiserate with their job creation. And when you pull it back even further and really start to look at where we're creating jobs versus where we're constructing houses, you really start to see that distinction widen. Yeah. And that's where we need to, that's the question of not just volume, but proximity to the job centers as well. And making sure that we are looking not just um, for the, the big number, but also making sure that we are being thoughtful about where that housing construction happens and that we're not over, you know, 
adding jobs in a way that's you know really great for the region in a particular area, but not having housing to support that those jobs, aside from being really far away. Absolutely. What else needs to happen for, obviously you need to, you know, there's some conversation about incentives for getting housing to be built. I don't think the city wants to be in the, the job of actually building things or even subcontracting to build things. What, in addition to those incentives, what else needs to happen in order for us to build more homes? And I think, you know, the building more homes, the market is going to uh, bring housing mm-hmm. at a certain price point, right? I mean, construction's expensive. It keeps getting more expensive. Mm-hmm. And that construction has to be, um, you know, for them to get financing to build the building, it needs to have revenue that can offset that debt. So the, the market's only going to bring housing to a certain level, certain number of price points, right, at a certain right. level. Below that, we're going to have to make uh, deliberate public investment in those projects to make sure that we have units that are priced, uh, again, kind of in that workforce um, housing space where we've got uh, resources through the federal government, through the low-income housing tax credit. Uh, Franklin County has a magnet fund. We've got uh, the 2019 housing bond that was passed by the voters was um, used to support those projects and leverage those other funds. And we end up with about 1,300 of those units constructed with that 50 million, leveraging an additional 300 million in other funding brought to the table by those developers. So we have those 1,300 units that are priced below market um, and in in those communities and and brought by that $50 million bond. And the success of that and and the great work our partners did and the other jurisdictions um, that brought funding to the table to bring those units online uh, is created a a clear idea that this was a really important tool that we could utilize. Again, going back to the idea of housing as infrastructure, bond packages are typically focused on things like utilities and roadways and what we traditionally think of as infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Um, And this shift of really thinking of our housing as being equally important uh, Mm. to the livability of our community. And so that uh, bond package in November, right now we're looking at 150 million of it being dedicated again to supporting those big A affordable projects bringing in those units that the market's not going to naturally provide and doing it in a deliberate um, in way that we're making a public investment in that particular part of the infrastructure that the market's just not going to bring to us on its own. And so looking at the outcomes that we would get out of that $150 million as well to bring another round of those units into the community. Again, working with our partners like Franklin County and uh, Ohio Housing Finance Agency and, and our opportunities with low-income housing tax credits. Uh, so you bring all of those pieces together, you know, if we're able to support those projects, we can actually bring these units into the community. And that's that takes that deliberate public investment that we we saw the success of after the $50 million bond. And that's the role of government, right, is to sort of fill the gaps that the market doesn't provide for itself. Correct. And I think that's, again, looking at our infrastructure, you know, certainly that is a piece that is really critical and gonna be really important as we continue to build out our job creation because we do need folks to support the community as well, right? And we need to be able to staff our hospitals. We need to be able to um, have folks that are working for our small businesses and creating the great amenities that we love in our communities that we need those folks uh, to be with us and be able to live in our, you know, if you, mayor's fond of saying, if you are, if you work here, you should be able to live here. 
Mm -hmm. And that's regardless of where you are on that income spectrum, that that should always be an opportunity available to you in central Ohio. Aaron, I wrap up almost every interview with two questions. One, what do you think Columbus is doing really well? And two, what do you think Columbus is not doing so well? I love it when it falls a little bit outside your normal purview, but you can answer it from within it. So first of all, what do you think Columbus is doing really well? I think, I mean, when you look at our our peer cities and the fact that in this new position, I've had the opportunity to really uh, talk to people about housing and how engaged just generally people in Central Ohio are around this question and Mm -hmm. really thinking deeply about how we do this right and wanting to be the city that gets it right. Mm. Uh, I look around the nation and there's there's pieces and parts and and folks have done individual different things um, that have moved the needle, but to comprehensively shift the thinking of how we build a city mm-hmm. and how we become a place that is continues to be livable, affordable, and competitive. Those are those that being thoughtful at this point is not something you see in other communities. And it's it's across leadership and it's down to folks that I am running into that don't live and breathe this every day. Um, everyone seems to be thinking about it and, and having really important conversations that we have the chance to not have to dig ourselves out of the hole, right? We're Mm -hmm. in a position where we could actually start to see real change that keeps us affordable, livable, and competitive and build a growing city. And so it's, I think we are collectively um, all really interested in in achieving that. We may differ on the methods, but I think collectively we're very interested in achieving a really inclusive, equitable city. And what do we not do so well? I think at times we think of this growth and we talk about a housing crisis, right? And we talk about kind of what's coming with that. I would like to see us talk more about the opportunities that it also brings. Uh, We think about the ability to build a robust transit system. We think about the opportunities for small business and uh, growth and entrepreneurship having all these new neighbors and new residents in our community is bringing all of that to to us right where where mm-hmm. 10 15 20 years ago that wasn't who columbus was and we are going to be different we are going to change we are going to be a city that doesn't look like we did in 1990 or even the year 2000 but mm-hmm. there's a huge amount of opportunity we get out of this growth and density and bringing new neighbors in that you know, if we could think more in terms of how to maximize our opportunities and while mitigating the, the impacts that we think are coming, I think if we could have a balanced conversation where we're, I mean, I'm excited about the stuff we're gonna be able to, to have in this community that um, really we haven't had the population to warrant. And you think right. about the efforts with Linkos, you think about all the other ways in which we're starting to uh, really move into a, a different type of, of city that I think that's the opportunity for me. And I think it's really exciting. And, you know, there's going to be, you know, growing pains and there's going to be challenges and we're going to have to be really thoughtful about the impacts. But I also just want to be really excited uh, about what we have coming to us as we 
have a greater population and, and we can sustain some of those bigger systems that I know we're all interested in. So I think being hopeful and being uh, seeing it as an opportunity, I, I'd like to, to put that out there. Absolutely. Aaron, thank you for your time. No problem. I'm sure there's uh, a boatload of other um, topics around housing that we'll, we can cover and probably will cover. Absolutely. I hope so. Sitting down here virtually with local entrepreneur David Hunanya. Dave, how are you? Hello, Tim. It's good to see you. Yeah, it's great it's to, to see, see you, you too. And uh, thank you for this opportunity. I'm excited. Absolutely. Absolutely. Before we talk about your recent endeavor, can you give us a little bit of background? How did you come to be an entrepreneur? Oh, sure. You know, I've, um, I've been in the Columbus startup community yeah, for about 20, 22 even years now. I've, you know, I've, I, as you know, I've been in, in and out of a number of startups. Uh, my first one was actually a job board 20 years ago. And when some of the big job boards like Monster and Career Builder and Hot Jobs, I don't know if you remember those brands mm-hmm. from way back uh, when, but when they started disrupting the way companies recruited candidates, I thought, you know, what a great opportunity for us to, to be a part of that disruption. And so we came up uh, with the name and we came up with this idea for a plat- or for our job board. And actually, it was one of our interns that came up with the, the actual uh, focus for our job board. And so what she said was instead of focusing on full-time jobs like, you know, some of the big job boards, she said, mm-hmm. what if we focused on part-time job opportunities for high school and college students? And that was just, it blew my mind. <laughs> and, and I thought, wow, why not, you know, why not go down that path? So uh, rather than competing directly with Monster and Career Builder and some of these other incredibly well-funded job boards, um, that's what we did. We, we focused on part-time and hourly jobs for high school and college students uh, mm-hmm. and pretty quickly scaled nationally. We had every, if you can imagine, every single mall retailer like Macy's mm. and Sears and JCPenney to every single fast food chain uh, using our platform, again, all around the country. And we were able to, again, scale that business. And after about five or six years of being in that business, we received an unsolicited offer from a publicly traded company. So we, we sold that business. And that really gave us the financial runway to pursue some other opportunities. And so uh, with Rich Langdale, a uh, local uh, venture capitalist, we, mm-hmm. uh, Rich and I and John Myers, uh, we started Do Media, which is the largest platform for buyers and sellers of out-of-home advertising. Uh, worked on another project called Bylines, uh, which is uh, one of the largest platforms for uh, buyers and sellers of user-generated content. And also started working, uh, was actually one of the founding partners of Loud Capital which is a venture mm-hmm. capital firm here in Columbus. So, you know, the, the, the one, so we've, as a company, invested in about 75, maybe 80 startups. Uh, some of the local uh, favorites, Hot Chicken Takeover, uh, we were mm-hmm. one of the first investors. Uh, Hyperion Motors, which is a hydrogen-powered uh, supercar and technology company. And, uh, and then, yeah, the, the latest and uh, most exciting uh, is Lease the Lawn. So uh, excited about, and this. that's why you're here today. And yeah. there's been a whole lot of discussion, certainly on the podcast and in in the 
frankly, in media in general around housing. And that's this is a solution that this startup is endeavoring to uh, sort of address some concerns. So give us, you know, as they say, give us the elevator pitch and then let's <laughs> sure. di- dive a little deeper. Into sure. It. Love to. And just to give you a little bit of background. So mm-hmm. my wife and I live in Italian village uh, in the short north area. And, you know, in the short north and Italian village area, a lot of the homes are call it 75 plus years old. And mm-hmm. a lot of them, as a result, don't even have garages. We have alley access, but we don't have garages. And about two years ago, my neighbor across the street, she's actually, um, she's actually uh, works with the city. Uh, she built a garage and an ADU, uh, which stands for accessory dwelling unit. But I, I think the general sort of population just calls it a carriage house. But anyway, she, okay. she created a carriage house and garage in her backyard and it's awesome. And so, uh, you know, I took a look at it and I thought, you know, I want one of those. I want one of those too. Um, because what my wife and I, we don't have a garage. And so, uh, the thought of creating a garage, but then also monetizing it through the, you know, the, the construction of a carriage house on top of it, Mm -hmm. that, that, that got pretty exciting pretty fast. And so what I did was started looking at, excuse me, uh, you know, the various models. How do I finance uh, a, a carriage home? And then during that research, I found that in some of the major markets on the West Coast, so uh, LA, Portland, Seattle, uh, those markets, ADUs are common and you see them mm-hmm. quite a bit. In LA, they call them granny flats, actually. And, okay. And- I think of them as, as Mike Seaver suites, but, you know, <laughs> sure. That's- Probably a little bit too much of a throwback of a reference. That is a great reference. I love that. But um, so, yeah, so we, we found, you know, that this is actually quite common. This type of uh, construction or this type of um, real estate is quite common and thought, well, how do we build a program uh, around this, right? How do we, and, and, you know, I, again, I've been an entrepreneur for 20 years, so the entrepreneur in me uh, thought immediately, if, if I'm going to architect, design, engineer, and ultimately build one in my backyard, how do I build a mm-hmm. hundred of these? And so that's how we started to go down this path of, okay, how do we, how do, we do this at scale? And so mm-hmm. that's, that's where we are today. That's how we, we came up with the idea for Lease the Lawn. And really the value, you know, what, what we're trying to do is we're trying to provide value to three separate cohorts, right? So you've got the homeowner mm-hmm. and you know, uh, when you think about the typical, you know, pioneering first-time homeowner in Italian Village or Marion Village or the Near East Side, you know, uh, that doesn't have a garage, chances are that first-time homebuyer, that pioneering homeowner, may not have the financial resources to build a garage and an ADU. So what we do is we have a program where we can actually build for free. And the reason we do that or the way we can do that is we say to that pioneering homeowner, we need to monetize that ADU for uh, 10 years. And if after 10 years uh, we can monetize, then our financial model will allow us to give that, that structure, that, uh, that ADU and that garage back to the homeowner. Okay. Uh, so the value there is you know, the homeowner, again, is increasing their property value significantly, in many cases, 30 to 40% with the addition of a garage and, and uh, that rentable real estate. 
So that's the first cohort. The second cohort is the actual neighborhood, right? So the more of these homes that we build, these ADUs that we build, the more density we create. And the more density we mm -hmm. create, the more safety and security that we create. Uh, because now we have people living in these back alleys and they're well lit. And, and again, they're, they're, the more density you have, again, the more walkable these communities become and then the safer they become as a result. So the, the final, you know, um, uh, cohort is actually the city. You know, the city, uh, you know, as, as you've talked about quite a bit on your podcast, uh, affordable housing is a real issue. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what we're doing is we're saying, hey, we can go in, we can build these things, these ADUs uh, economically and at scale. And, mm -hmm. and now, as a result, we're increasing property values. And, and when we increase property values, that increase that increases what's the best way to say this the tax base for the, the community yeah true true and so you are doing functionally in my mind doing two things right you're offering a turnkey solution for here's how to get this garage slash carriage house onto your property and you're also offering a alternative financing option for paying for it right correct uh and theoretically the homeowner would have control over the garage space correct and correct. then you guys would be the let's say property managers of the additional living space that would exist above it correct you you absolutely you're absolutely right so the homeowner the the, the key benefit for them is again mm -hmm. they've got a garage now uh, yeah. that they would they didn't before that ADU or that carriage home again we would manage that so the homeowner would never have to worry about issues you know uh, uh you know with with you know renting a, an apartment uh they mm -hmm. wouldn't have to you know vet these potential renters we do all the vetting we do all the maintenance everything is is mm -hmm. covered by lease the lawn and then additionally after the 10 years You've improved the property value, theoretically, of that property because after the 10-year agreement, it just goes back to the homeowner, correct? Correct. Yes, exactly. Got it. And so where are you in the process of, of standing it up and, and making it happen? Sure. Uh, great question. So we are we're in talks with about 10 to 12 property owners right now, homeowners. And okay. our goal is this year, we're going to build 10. Uh, great. Yeah. Yeah. We're pretty excited too. And so we've got some really interesting opportunities on the near East side here in Italian village. Uh, I hope my house is one of the 10. We'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I qualify. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we want to have 10, but before the end of the year, uh, okay. and 200, uh, in 2023. So wow. how do, yeah. How do we do that? You know, we've got relationships now with not only the city, but also a, ver uh, a variety of construction companies. Uh, we've got a local, uh, gosh, uh, supplier of all of all of the things that would go into uh, uh, an apartment, right? And you know, the flooring, the windows, the garage doors, uh, mm -hmm. uh, the kitchen cabinetry, all of those things. We we've spent the last year, year and a half, establishing all of those partnerships necessary for us to scale. And you guys are open to talking to potential, let's call them clients or partners now? Oh, yes, absolutely. As a matter of fact, we on our website, we have um, application forms for not only the homeowner, but also for the potential renter. 
So, okay. and, and, you know, we've even, we've even, we tried to be very thoughtful around what's the process and how do we, how do we communicate that process to the homeowner in a way that gives them comfort, right? So when, when you go to the website, you'll see, you know, there's, there's lease the lawn for the renter. Uh, there's lease the lawn for the homeowner. There's lease the lawn mm-hmm. for the community. And uh, for the homeowner, and uh, specifically for the homeowner, some of the things that we do is we walk them through what to expect, right? So first things first, we, we ask the question, do you have, uh, uh, are you a homeowner, right? And not a renter. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the first and foremost, uh, most important. But do you have alley access? Because if you don't have alley access, this may not be a good fit. Are, right. you, are you in a densely populated community like Italian Village, like, uh, you know, the Near East Side? Uh, and then if you, if you check those boxes, right, and then we can go to the next step. And so what we do, the next step is we actually do a site visit. And after that site visit, then we say, okay, you, you, you know, if you, if you pass that step, um, mm-hmm. uh, the next step would be then to do site surveys. And that's when we start to invest. Because now we have a surveyor go out to the to the property, check mm-hmm. all of the uh, all of the uh, services that that uh, ADU would need. So sewer, right. electric, water, uh, gas. You know, we want to make sure that we can actually bring all of those services to that site. Mm-hmm. Again, if we can, we pass that test. Then we sit down and we do a gut check. You know, here's here's the the floor plan. Here's mm-hmm. what it's going to look like in your backyard. We have some 3D renderings and some some elevations that we show, and again, that's that's the gut check for the homeowner. Okay, are we are, right. we, are we going to do this? Because you know there will be some inconvenience. The the backyard will be muddy, you know, and torn yeah. up for a couple of months. But yeah. you know, it's it's for you know it's um, that that short term, you know, uh, dealing with the dirt and the dust. Um, there's you know there's a significant upside. So after we again after that step that gut check, that's when we that's when we you know break ground, and usually mm-hmm. it takes about you know uh, ninety days. Got it, got it. Pretty straightforward. Yeah, it and and but it does sound like a, a innovative solution and bringing together the different stakeholders and the resources in order to make it happen. That's what's pretty exciting. The one thing that excites me the most about this project. I live in, you know, I, I mentioned a couple times, I live in Italian village in short North. And yeah. when you think about the traditional uh, development, you know, uh, of a community, uh, you know, you, again, I, I used this term a little earlier, but it usually starts with that pioneering group of homeowners, right? That hmm. will, will start to see opportunity and like call it Southern orchards, right? It's been happening there for yeah. about five or six years now. And what happens is at least in my experience, um, those pioneering homeowners, they do see value over the long term. But what mm-hmm. happens is larger development firms typically enter those markets and extract the real value, you know, by mm-hmm. building five and seven stories uh, of apartments and rentals. And I think what we're doing, the reason, again, I'm so excited is we're giving that value back to that pioneering homeowner in a mm-hmm. real meaningful way. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, Dave, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thank you.
Thank you for listening to Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. Again, you can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Please rate, subscribe, share this episode of the Confluence Cast with your friends, family, contacts, enemies, your favorite planner. If you're interested in sponsoring the Confluence Cast, get in touch with us. We can be reached by email at info at theconfluencecast.com. Our theme music was composed by Benji Robinson. Our producer is Philip Cogley. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. Have a great week.